0: This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we reported on a nefarious phishing scam in which threat actors impersonated an obvious, if unfair, target, a cybersecurity training company. Potential victims received an email allegedly written by the information security officer of the company Know Before, which provides security awareness training and phishing tests to countless companies across the world. The malicious email included a fake reminder for a security awareness training session with a bogus warning of a 24-hour deadline. The link inside the email, of course, did not lead to a legitimate training. Instead, it led users to a fake login screen, in which threat actors could swipe Microsoft Outlook credentials. In related news, a somehow legitimate phishing test tricked employees at the Tribune Publishing Company to click an embedded link after telling them they may have received up to $10,000 in company bonuses. It is a pandemic. American unemployment is still at record highs. Employees are people, and they are worried. So guess what? That kind of phishing test, which isn't even a scam, is also bad. Employees will only hate you for that. Our threat intelligence team discovered a case of double trouble as we spotted a credential stealer based on an earlier malware being distributed through a malvertising campaign similar to one we covered two weeks ago. In fact, the credential stealer named Taurus is such a close fork to its predecessor, named Predator the Thief, that some antivirus tools might detect the former for the latter. Come on, where's the originality? But make no mistake, just because Taurus is unoriginal doesn't mean it's ineffective. It can seal online credentials from web browsers, VPNs, FTPs, email clients, and some cryptocurrency wallets. As to how it's now being spread, well, remember two weeks ago when we talked about threat actors infiltrating the bidding networks that deliver online advertisements to adult websites? It's happening again, but with Taurus. All this repetition makes me want to remind you of last episode's lessons. Don't visit free porn sites and vote. Yes, still vote. That's not over yet. Finally, we explained the relationship between sandboxing and malware detection. In the continuing fight against malware, security researchers need a safe way to observe and test how certain malware samples behave. That's where sandboxes come in. Sandboxes provide ideal environments for sample analysis, as they are secluded from a broader network. But fighting malware is part of an evolutionary battle. As the good guys get better, so do the bad. In fact, some of the threat actors who write malware have found a way to train their malware to detect whether they're being run in a sandbox. If such a malware type recognizes all the signs of a sandbox, it may even change its behavior, laying low and hoping to avoid detection. If that sounds intimidating... Just remember, in the animal kingdom, that behavior is essentially playing possum. And look, possums are goofy. We don't fear them. In cybersecurity news across the world, Cyberscoop reported that security researchers at Group IB discovered a band of threat actors that has been targeting medical labs, banks, manufacturers, and software developers in Russia. The group, named Old Gremlin, has made repeated ransomware demands of about $50,000 from its victims. And if you think that name Old Gremlin is ridiculous, just you wait. TechCrunch wrote about the latest propaganda effort shut down by Facebook, which was detailed in a report published by the social media giant in partnership with the social analytics company Graphica. According to the report. Facebook took down 155 Facebook accounts, 11 pages, 9 groups, and 7 Instagram accounts connected to Chinese propaganda. The overall effort was dubbed Operation Naval Gazing. See, I told you, today's names are just out there. Reuters verified that the software vendor Tyler Technologies, which reportedly makes products used by U.S. states and counties to share election data, suffered a hack. I'm not even going to joke about that one because I, dear listeners, am a superstitious man. Like, you think I would have opened King Tut's tomb? Hell no, I wouldn't. Hold up. Almost got funny there. The FBI and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency warned about potential disinformation campaigns launched by foreign state actors to influence the upcoming 2020 U.S. presidential election. Are you people not listening? I said I am not playing with these news items. No jokes. Finally, Dexerto.com told readers that the video game publisher Activision, which releases the enormously popular Call of Duty games, pushed back against claims that it was hacked. Despite multiple users claiming a breach of some 500,000 user accounts, the mega game publisher called the reports, quote, not accurate. Which just so happens to be how I dispel criticism, too. Think our show's boring? Not accurate. The jokes are stale, not accurate. Don't like my voice, (laughs) you better believe that's not accurate. Our main story today is a little different. Today, we are digging into the digital vulnerabilities of our physical environment. These digital to physical vulnerabilities should sound familiar to most people. They often show up in news stories that shock viewers, for instance, in 2015, a pair of security researchers hacked a Jeep Cherokee and took over its steering, transmission, and brakes. In 2019, security researchers in Israel hacked medical scanning equipment to alter X ray images, inserting fraudulent visual signs of cancer. In a hypothetical patient. And you know, just about every year, we're warned about RFID scanners that can digitally reach into our wallets and swipe the credit card info held within. Now, many of these vulnerabilities are discovered through contained experiments. And for most folks out there, it can be hard to know what happens after the experiment. Take that 2015 Cheap Cherokee, for example. I'm sure that more listeners know about the vulnerability than about the patch, which was, and this is true, sent to more than 1 million car owners in USB sticks delivered in the mail. Today, though, we're going to be looking at and following up with another such experiment a garage door opener called Open Sesame. To better understand OpenSesame, how it works, why it works, and whether discovering a known vulnerability leads to protecting against those vulnerabilities, we're speaking with the tools developer, who is also the chief security officer and co-founder of OpenPath, Sammy Kamkar. Sammy, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, David.
0: To help our audience gain some insight into your research and also your work at OpenPath, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the company?
1: Yeah, absolutely. As you noted, I'm, I'm the co-founder of OpenPath Security. We're doing physical access control, so we're making it really easy to do touchless and hands-free uh, unlocking of doors into buildings, gates, et cetera, uh, especially for businesses and enterprise. And this is really interesting to me because as you noted, there are many, many ways to break into stuff. And that's always been really interesting to me. I've always been um, a hacker and security researcher. So I've always uh, since I was a kid, I've always been learning about and developing tools and exploits um, in order to break a lot of these technologies, in order to unlock mm-hmm. doors that shouldn't be unlocked or exploit RFID technology that shouldn't be so easily. So uh, that's been a, a really interesting to me to to sort of build something with a, an amazing team that is we believe is reasonably secure um, but super convenient, easy to use.
0: Yeah, it sounds extremely exciting, and like you said, it it does kind of fit. 100% into what we'll be talking about today. And so I wanted to just get right into it. First, can you tell us about what Open Sesame is and how it works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Open Sesame is a project I developed a couple of years ago. And it is essentially the hardware itself is using a defunct or discontinued Mattel toy, uh, a toy called a Mattel I Am Me. And it's essentially a little pink pager with a keyboard and a screen and a backlight. It's battery-powered, and it actually has something inside that's actually pretty cool. It's a specific sub-gigahertz transceiver system on chip. What that means is, essentially, it has a processor and it has an RF transceiver. That just means something that can transmit radio frequency and receive radio frequency at a a basic level. And sub-gigahertz, meaning that it transmits transmits and receives on most frequencies under one gigahertz, so call it maybe 200 to 300 megahertz to around nine, a little over 900 megahertz. And Open Sesame itself is software that lives on this toy that I developed specifically for that IME that can unlock most garages in under 10 seconds. It will actually open the garage um, with basically a key press mm-hmm. as sort of a proof of concept of the insecurity of a lot of our essentially locks and garages.
0: So is the vulnerability here, is it something inherent in all garage door openers? Is it something inherent in the way that RF frequencies communicate? You know, is, is having something, you know, sub one gigahertz, is that a really broad spectrum? Is that unusual for a Mattel toy? Uh, help us better understand again, you know, what, what is the vulnerability here?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So no, there's nothing inherently wrong with using any specific technology or frequency or, you know, mechanism. I mean, whether you're using radio frequency under gigahertz or over gigahertz, you know, there's plenty of stuff on 2.4 gigahertz. It's much higher. There's plenty of stuff that's not using radio frequency, but rather other portions of the electromagnetic spectrum, like infrared, you know, Mm -hmm. TV remotes, for example. Mm -hmm. So no, there's nothing wrong with the frequency itself. And it just happens to be that this toy is a there are other hackers and researchers. Michael Lawson is one, and several others who found that this toy actually has a chip. Specifically, this CC eleven ten. It's a, a Texas Instruments chip that is a quite powerful chip by itself. You can go out and buy this chip from a DigiKey or an electronic parts manufacturer, and then build a board, design a board, program it yourself, uh, use a JTAG or some sort of device to, to program it, write some firmware, use all the the tools to do that. But then you have to to do something on it it 's kind of cool that it 's an all in one package with a lot of useful features, specifically the keyboard, the backlight, the screen, the battery power mm-hmm. it just had all these really neat things that you could just go out in the field mm-hmm. and have something that just works without even a computer so a couple of us uh, just got interested in what else can we do on this toy and around the same time, I was kind of interested in just garages myself, so i have a I live in a condo building and well, there's a garage I have a clicker that they gave me that unlocks it one day I was simply curious. I was like how how does this work? Because I think I had the same question that you did David Which is how does this work? And also are there any vulnerabilities and what I learned pretty quickly was that the way it works At least my garage is that I have a transmitter and it sends a code at around 300 megahertz. So When I inspected that code if you've ever opened up maybe a garage door opener often they'll have dip switches inside Sometimes you'll see, like, 10 DIP switches or 12 binary DIP switches. And that's a code, a fixed code that's getting sent to the garage door receiver. And that code is essentially a password. Now, what's super interesting about that is that, say you have something like a, you know, in my garage door, I have something like a 12-bit binary code. So a 12-bit binary code means there's 12 of these switches with two possibilities, one or zero. And that's 2 to the 12 possibilities. 2 to the 12 is 4,096 possibilities. Now, just to get a grasp of how many possibilities that is, let's say you have a a bank account online, you know, you use online banking, and you set a password for yourself. If you set a two-character password, you know, just say letters, alphanumeric, so you're using numbers as well, and maybe using shift and number as well, that's something like, I don't know, 80 different possibilities. 80 possibilities... Just two characters long. So if you had a two-character bank password, that's sixty-four hundred possibilities. Much more than the four thousand ninety-six of my garage.
0: Right. So and no one would, <laughs> no one would be like, yeah, I'm I'm cool with you know a three being my password. <laughs>
1: exactly. No one on you know no one in their right mind would ever set their password to a two-character password, at least to something important. <laughs> and yet, that's more secure than most fixed code garages out there. So that was sort of the instant and immediate and obvious vulnerability to me was this incredibly small key space. However, there is something interesting about this radio frequency and actually the the frequency that it is, it is kind of low. It also means the baud rate or the the data rates that you send information or send codes is actually kind of slow. So online, it's a little different because it's really easy to send millions and millions of requests in minutes. You can't actually do that on the radio spectrum. Ah. I mean, you can, but, but the receiver itself won't even know how to interpret that. Because it won't,
0: yeah, it won't register it, I guess. Is, what you're, is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. Because really, I mean, when you're saying 300 megahertz, really, you're saying something can actually, you're oscillating electromagnetism at 300 million times per second, and you can only fit so much data in those oscillations. So, what's interesting is that you do have to go at the data rate that the receiver is capable of listening at, and that's very slow. So, mm-hmm. I found that if I were to brute force those 4,096 possibilities, it would actually take me, in some cases, it would take hours to to go through all the possible frequencies and data rates. And, you know, different garages have different dip switch amounts, like 10, some are 10 bits some are 12 bits, some are trinary. So they actually have three switches. So I found that although the key space was quite limited, you could design the device to brute force all of this. And, you know, brute force attack is just going through every possible combination. And you could make a device and, You could put it outside of the garage and you could wait a couple hours. And then ultimately that would be unlocked. Granted, if you just wanted to do that, you could just go outside the garage and wait for someone to go in. (laughs) When I saw the actual radio frequency that was getting transmitted, essentially it's also sending pulses of ones and zeros. And when I looked at it, I noticed that the, the pulses, there were sort of short pulses and long pulses. And essentially I saw something like, 1011100011, 1011100011, one, zero, 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 one, something like that. In this scenario, the code, my password that was in my clicker, equated to the exact code that was getting transmitted. And I thought, okay, I can try brute forcing all of this and be able to unlock it. And I was successful in doing that. But I wondered if I could speed things up. And then I wondered, normally the way the garage clicker works is you're sending this data and then it waits a little bit of time, like in the millisecond range, but it waits and then resends it. And I said, what if I get rid of that millisecond range and I just send code after code after code without waiting? And I tested that, and I found out that actually doubles my speed and still unlocks. Normally on the website, you'd need to say, enter a password and then submit, and then mm-hmm. enter another. Right. Well, in this scenario, I could essentially enter 1,000 passwords at once, and then submit them all at once. And then I thought about it a little longer, and I was like, wait, how does it even know where one password begins and one ends? Does it know that it say it's 10 bits long or 12 bits long and then it just takes that mm-hmm. or is it using something called a shift register where it might only look at the 12 bits and then remove one bit when that doesn't work and then look at the next bit and just push that in
0: So it's only so, it's taking 12 and then it's not looking at the next 12 it's only looking at the next one am i interpreting that right
1: Yeah so so it would pop off the first one for the first single bit off and then pull in the next one okay. and then test that set of 12 Mm okay So if that were the case, and let's say it's a 12-bit code, what if I just sent a 13-bit code? So I'm only sending 13 bits total. But if that's the case, then it's going to test the first 12 bits. And if that fails, then it just tests the next bit with the first bit removed. Because again, I sent 13 bits. So really, it's testing two different, entirely different codes with only 13 bits. They're kind of overlapping, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I found that if the second code in that 13 bits was correct, then it would still open. So that was the case. It was actually sort of ignoring. It was only taking one bit at a time. And with that, I realized there's probably some algorithm out there that can figure out proper order so that you can overlap Mm -hmm. every possible combination of code in a way where they're all overlapping. So you're not duplicatively sort of sending a full code you're just taking advantage of the last 11 bits of every previous code the next time you try one so you're now trying every code and you only have to send one bit to send it to try a new code and then you send one bit to try a new 12-bit code and i found a mathematician named de bruyne i'm probably butchering his name he produced an algorithm many years ago does just this and that was a that was really cool because that essentially allowed me to then develop a new version that could send all 4096 codes in under 8 seconds.
0: Uh-huh. A lot of what you've explained here is it seems like just a lot of ingenuity, a lot of ingenuity on your part and also on past, you know, mathematicians, you know, like you said De Bruyne had something for this, for this situation, probably wasn't thinking that this is what it would be used for, you know, many years later. But there's there's a lot of, again, like I said, ingenuity here. And what I'm wondering then is, where does the responsibility of beefing up security lie? You know, like beefing up security for a garage door opener. Can manufacturers expect that individuals are going to do a deep dive like this? Is it even correct to call it a deep dive? Again, where does the responsibility of beefing up security lie?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good question. It's, I, I think it's a, it's a challenging one, um, especially because uh, you know when, when the designers of these systems develop them initially, we're not talking about modern systems that were built today, although, granted, we are talking about systems that are still manufactured and sold today. That's somewhat of a challenge. It's a tough problem because I know, I know that security is difficult. There is no perfect solution <laughs> to anything. <laughs> And people are curious, right? There are many people who are naturally curious and they want to know how things work. And there are many people who are also curious to see, you know, can, can they break things? What's interesting to me is that things like this have kind of been known that we've had these really very weak codes. I think I'm just demonstrating maybe a, that they're not... Often, I think when we don't see something, when we don't visually see it, and mm-hmm. we don't really realize maybe the, the weakness exists. That's why I think things like radio frequency and electromagnetism are so interesting because they control so many components of our lives yet we never really see it. So we don't really know what's happening under the hood and once you look and once you sort of make that visual association at least for me that oh these codes are just transmitting in the air and anyone can listen to it or anyone can just brute force it or anyone can try to come up with new ideas and ways to exploit this uh, that's when it sort of clicks like oh, there is no security in this system that its only job is to do security. I know I didn't necessarily answer your question. I, I do believe that just as a whole, everyone who is interested in securing devices, securing systems, and manufacturing and building systems to help with security, I do believe it's the manufacturer's responsibility, although I am somewhat empathetic and, and compassionate in that security is difficult. And when these systems were designed, there weren't a lot of people probably inspecting it, Right. So I think the expectation that there would be many people jumping in, diving in, and looking at how they worked, that wasn't happening. So it really wasn't a threat. It's kind of like, you know, we have encryption today that is resistant, as far as we know, against any technology that exists today. But we also know that some of these things are not going to be resistant against quantum computers. So it's hard to say, do we we say, okay, well, the designers of those algorithms, you you know, it's their fault for... Designing something that wasn't capable of being resistant against quantum computing, I I don't think that's fair to say. I don't think it's fair to put that onus on them them, because when they designed it, that wasn't really something to, that wasn't a concern at the time. Things change and we need to be cognizant of that. So I think maybe that responsibility can be shared and and I hope we all can share in that and understanding, hey, things are hard, things change. If we know something is bad, let's try to improve it. Let's try to fix that. And let's just try to improve things moving forward.
0: I wanted to circle back here to some of the vulnerabilities that we've been talking about. And also in the things like we hear, I think, constantly, right? I, I don't think a year has gone by in my life if if I watch like a regular evening news program where at least one time I don't hear, you know, someone is going to steal the credit card info from my wallet using an RFID scanner, you know? And there's a bunch of tools out there as well for, you know, there's a bunch of like, RFID scanning proof wallets and passport holders. What I'm curious about here is are these types of vulnerabilities that I think a lot of people have heard about, are these types of vulnerabilities things that folks should worry about, or are they more like a, a teaching moment to show how our devices can interact with one another, whether we're aware of it or not?
1: Yeah, I, generally, I don't think people should ever worry. I, I, think, I don't think any of us should worry about stuff. I think we should just say, hey, can I do better without going through a lot of effort? I think, how can I just improve my, not something everyone thinks to themselves, but can I just improve my security posture? Can I make things a little more secure and know that I'm gonna have to deal with maybe less pain in the future if I do some simple things like you take advantage of the systems I already have, like my phone, instead of using some of these things and some of these existing things like credit cards or RFID cards or or keys. You will actually probably go through less effort. It will be some more effort upfront to get used to changing. But, you know, I keep having my credit card stolen, the credit card number, right? It's right, like right. constantly being used. It's constantly being used. Um, usually, it's not a big deal. Usually, the credit card, you know, if we're talking credit cards, I think that's actually a for the consumer, it's quite a low risk. And the reason it's a low risk is because fortunately, credit card companies are, are pretty good about taking care of that stuff, right? They send you a, another one that's free. However, finally, it's turned into an issue for me because my credit card was stolen. Um, So I went online, I went to my credit card company, they sent me a new one, and they didn't charge. me. So I was like, you know, that's great. That's that's why that was never a big deal. It didn't really cost me money. It it only cost me maybe 10 minutes of my time and a a small hassle, nothing big. Well, it happened probably a week later, as soon as I got my new one. And I I just used my credit card out and about and it happened again. And now they wouldn't let you get another one because they're like, well, you can't just keep getting it stolen. I'm like, well, (laughs) I'm not doing any, it's not like I'm posting it online. I'm not doing, you know, it's in my possession. I actually have it. I'm holding it. (laughs) Some, You know, a a retailer, a point of sales, you know, someone at a retailer I use, and I don't go that many places. I went to probably a couple of restaurants. Like that's literally where I use my credit card in person. Someone stole it, right? There's a bad apple in one of those companies or one of those restaurants or places I went. And, They were malicious. There's nothing I can do about that. And for a while, they wouldn't send me a credit card. That in itself was actually a huge pain for me. I want to stop using these things. I would much rather do NFC. Yes, there's still the possibility for the stolen credit card, but Mm -hmm. it's going to be more challenging. They're not going to be able to extract all the data. Again, nothing is perfect, but we can use more secure technologies that just create more barriers for attackers.
0: Right. And some of the things that we were talking about with your projects, right, something like Open Sesame as well is a couple of years old, right? And so I wanted to get a moment to update ourselves on your more recent projects. What what have you been working on? What areas of research are you engaged in?
1: Yeah, I've been really interested in just lower level attacks. So understanding how things are working at a more fundamental level? And are there ways that we can exploit that? Because, you know, there will always be human error. That, that's just, we can't prevent that. We can always try to implement systems and try to improve. And I think we all try to do that. But there's interesting areas where of like physics, like how, how's the data actually travel across a conductor? Is there a way that I can manipulate that? Because if, uh, if there's a conductor, if there's something like a, a copper trace on a circuit board, and that's carrying information, vital information, you know, when, when there's Electrons moving through a conductor—it's actually emanating um, an electromagnetic field. Can I pick that up? Uh, could I do the inverse? Could I produce an electromagnetic field to produce a current in a conductor to make a chip, a processor, think that it got some data that wasn't even there—that was mm-hmm. never actually transmitted by this, you know, within the system? Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in sort of side channel attacks, uh, fault injection, and fault analysis to see are, are there new techniques that we don't know about yet. That can exploit physical phenomena in order to take advantage of systems that might be air-gapped, right? Might not actually even have any sort of LAN connection or internet or ethernet or Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or other inputs.
0: I saw you recently saying on Twitter that our passwords can be revealed through sound. I, I, I might be butchering that and that brief yeah. understanding of it, but can you, that piqued my interest 100%. So can you explain that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's some. Um, there's some amazing researchers. Uh, I believe at the believe it was at the University of Tel Aviv, they demonstrated that they can do this specific thing, where they can essentially extract cryptographic keys or passwords through the sound that your computer makes. Now, the sounds themselves, you and I, we don't hear it, mm-hmm. but when your processor is processing information. let's say it's using RSA to encrypt something and it's using a key. If the first bit of the key is zero versus one, it's going to perform different instructions. In one case, it might just be, say, a modulo, where uh, in the other case, it might be a modulo and a multiplication. And in the other case where it's modulo and multiplication, that requires more power because it's more instructions. And the power has to come from a power supply and it has to reach the processor and go through some capacitors and inductors. And as Power goes through things like capacitors and inductors, there are other effects. There are physical phenomena like the electrostrictive effect, the magnetostrictive effect, the Lorentz force. There are many physical phenomena that occur that cause things to move. Just like if you rub a balloon on a shirt and then put it near your hair, your hair is gonna stand. Things are gonna move. The electrons on the charges on your hair are gonna be attracted to the balloon or vice versa. So the same kind of thing happens inside your computer, but it's happening very fast. When things are moving very fast, or when things are moving, they can produce sound. Because you're now talking about capacitors on a circuit board that are moving. They're moving left and right. They're oscillating very, very, very tiny. But they're also oscillating so fast, the sound is beyond our range of hearing. It's not sound, it's ultrasound. You and I can't hear it, but the microphones in our phones can actually listen to ultrasound. They're capable Mm -hmm. of listening to that high of a frequency. And if you record that, and you say, oh, that's interesting. I just saw 4,096 operations. And some of them were longer and louder than the others. Well, that could be 4096-bit RSA key being used to perform the cryptographic operation. And some of these, if you just visually look at the amplitude, uh, basically the volume of that ultrasound, you can then say, oh, yeah, this kind of looks like this operation versus that operation, assuming you know the underlying algorithm. Right. And you can typically guess what the underlying algorithm is based off the number of operations or the pattern that you see. As humans, we're very good at pattern recognition, and we can tell the computer, oh, yeah, you know these 256 operations looks like AES-256 versus the 4096 that looks like RSA-4096. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just by encrypting something, yeah, your, your computer is actually producing other physical phenomena like ultrasound that can reveal the actual key that was used. And if there's a device, a malicious device nearby that's listening like a cell phone, something as simple as a cell phone with a microphone on, that can store that information and perform the analysis offline. And extract that key.
0: That is exciting. And actually just exciting. I'm not even I don't even think it's terrifying. I don't think it's (laughs) scary. I just think it's extremely exciting. It's wild that intersection of those two worlds.
1: Yeah, it is. It is so crazy. And, you know, again, I like I don't I would never blame someone for this. This is uh, (laughs) these are not things that, you know, I'm definitely we just don't we don't know how every little thing in the world operates and even when we do there's no single person that knows how every little thing operates so there's no no way that someone's going to find the solution and uh, be able to secure every little thing but i think the more we understand and the more we can protect against uh, by working together
0: Same. sammy i just wanted to thank you again for being on our show today
1: uh, thanks a lot David. it was a lot of fun to chat about this stuff
0: to our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with CNET senior reporter Alfred Ing and the Parallax editor in chief Seth Rosenblatt about the role of journalists in cybersecurity and online privacy.